Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Donald E. Vandergriff is an award-winning author, teacher, and speaker who has written, edited, or contributed to 11 books and over 100 articles. He is a noted authority on mission command, maneuver warfare, and leadership development. I met Donald through Mark McGrath, and if you haven't heard our conversation about everything from the OODA loop to reorientation, you need to go check that one out. But he spoke so highly of him even after the interview that he made an intro for us. So I'm so grateful to have you on the show today, Donald. Thank you for being here and for taking the time. Welcome to the show. I'm always honored and to be asked. I'm sincere about that and, and, and getting to know you and being anything I can do to, to help you out and your listeners out to get better. Well, that's that's why we do what we do, right? We're supposed to, um, I, I say the best leaders are teachers. And in my opinion, this is a great example of all of us have this, like, if you're a teacher, you have the heart of a student as well. So just like we were talking before I hit record, which I probably should have just hit record because there was gold in there, but we go through and we we take this information and we we consume it and we process it and then we test it or we apply it or we we base it on what our reality is or what we think reality is and i think that that is very much a lost art because in technology now it's more about people want to accumulate they want consumption but they aren't really focused on application or yeah yeah give me the powerpoint version of it but then when they're under pressure when they're facing adversity all that stuff goes out the window and now they're kind of stuck in this place where they don't know what to do. And as we know in combat, hesitation that leads to not only mission failure, but people dying. So we have to have the ability to apply it in real time. They're not into reflection either, reflecting what they just learned. Every session that I have, and it was prominent in, in the Gettysburg thing that Mark and I did in early October with V-Rail, outstanding company, great people. But we talked a lot about that. We had sessions after action reviews, ARs, which are done very poorly by the military and most organizations. And I, I'm always on to them because I've watched hundreds of them. And there are reflections. What did we just learn how we apply that? And the CEO of VRail, Lynn Morrison, great guy, took the time to do these AARs with his, I think it was 13 or 14 of his key people that went through this two-day staff ride at Gettysburg, which we, Mark and I both facilitate, but it was about them, not us. So you can tell a true teacher because the less he talks and the more he involves the students, the more it's about the student and the ownership of the learning, not most teachers that claim to be good or they're awarded to be good, 
have very big egos, both in society and the military, and they dominate the stage. My goal is always to have the students dominate the stage and do most of the talking. So when I do my one, two, half day, three day, whatever workshops, the the feedback's generally always the same. One, this went fast from the moment you started, and that's a reflection of they were constantly involved and they weren't worried about getting off or going doing something else. And two is we took ownership of the learning. That's what's key. Uh, so that's that's my foundation right there of all the books and articles I've written on how to make more decisive, confident leaders that communicate well. And I agree. That's a sign of a great teacher, in my opinion, um, whether it be a martial arts instructor or, again, even uh, even if you're doing pistol or rifle shooting. Yes, the instructor needs to demonstrate because he wants to show you how it should look. And that also shows us that he knows what he's doing. But again, he doesn't need the reps. We need the reps. So if he's up there all the time banging out 30 rounds, it's like, well, you're cutting into our time to be able to learn the skill set. So as you were saying, and I I can't echo enough. I'm a speaker. I've been on some big stages. I know some big people. And the GED guy, that's cool, man. Yeah, but as you were saying, there are some people on stage that are more concerned about, hey, listen to me. Enough about me. What about you? What do you think about me? It's like, no, you need to be giving these people information that challenges them, that forces them to look back, to make them reflect on what they can do better. And then again, if we're, whether it be speaking or the workshop, that should all be their time. Give them the opportunity. Don't just give them a bunch of notes because if we give them a bunch of notes, whether if I hand out the notes, they're not going to take notes. They're not going to pay attention. And if I make them take notes and I'm telling them to write stuff down, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be legible or they're going to understand it thereafter. So what do we do? We teach, do the AAR now, review, apply, do it again, do it again, do it again. Under different now, conditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the U.S. military still, despite being almost 2024 20, right now, mm -hmm. uh, continues with the industrial age. So we practice. We Well, we give you the assignment. We tell you exactly what's going to happen. Then you read about it. Then you come and get lectured about it. Then you take a test. And then we move to something else. The continued evolution of learning is I was at a cadet command conference in 2011, 2012. I was consulting them on how to get more adaptive leader because that was a big move in the Army. And it dominated PowerPoint slides everywhere, how to be mm -hmm. adaptive leaders. Well, ROTC said, we don't need, uh, Sergeant Major Annecy said, we don't need you here. We, we're doing great as an Army. And I, and I flashed up a slide. I used PowerPoint, but sparingly, that had their schedule for all six weeks that a cadet goes through. It was every hour than what they do. And I said, how is this adaptive? That the whole year, cadet programs are shown exactly what they're going to do and what to train for because they're going to make the, the greatest marks to be the top program. I threw off when, when I came to Georgetown ROTC in 2000, and I was the S3, the operations officer and the XO and the Commodore Cadets. I worked for a couple of great people who listened to me. I rewrote the entire curriculum. I said, we're not going to worry about advanced camp or whatever. We're going to train to, we're going to develop to adaptability, how to think on your feet. And we're going to bring in the tools. I threw out all the Cadet Command PowerPoint slides and, and uh, focus on trivial stuff. And then because the hardest thing to learn is how to be adaptive and how to think on your feet. 
And then every, all the task training can come later because it's it's rote memorization. Exactly. Uh, so we I brought in tactical decision games and war games and then free play exercises in the field, force on force. And by 2003, they were the number one program in the country. They went from 241st to number one in three years. Wow. And they stayed there for a while. But that was not only because of me, but people believed in what I was saying and, and took a risk. But the cadets who I keep in contact with, many of them now believed in it because they, they had the burden. Because even at Georgetown, George Washington, some so-called great schools, they were telling me how they were brought in industrial age, lectured at, mass production, take the test and move on. Critical thinking was a low priority, as we're seeing now in our society in many, in many forms. So my focus is I did my undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate work on how did the Germans develop an incredible thinking, adaptive leader? That was their focus because they realized under Helmut Maltke, the, the elder, the chief of staff in 1858, they realized that we're surrounded by enemies. We don't have resources. Our only resource is people. And Moltke saw the, the first operations order for the first exercise he attended in 1858, and it was like 700 pages long. And he said, we got to get away from this. We got to get to where we give people more empowerment. So it took him a few years to get there. By 1870, the reason they beat the French was the initiative and adaptability of their junior leaders. And they held to that. The problem's and before one of your listeners comes up, well, we beat them in two wars. Well, yeah, we did, because the Germans went, okay, if we win, their strategy came down to we can kill more people than we lose, and we can win more battles at the operational tactical level. We, that's strategy. That's not strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Strategy is the highest form of warfare morally, uh, and it needs to be done correctly. But the Germans had fig- thought that if we win battles quickly and more battles – that's our strategy, and that's why they got defeated in two world wars. But we have the we have a very misled thought that yeah, because we beat them, we don't need to study them. And so it's and, and we don't and we study the battles, which is wrong too. We don't study the the professional development. As I was talking to you before we came on, it's uh, thanks to Colonel Joe Krosick, my one of my brigade commanders, when he wrote an article called "Behind the Baseline." Mm. That's what. It's in tank. I'm a, I'm a tank officer, but enlisted Marine, but a tank officer. It's the preparations you do behind the baseline, which is at the gunnery range tower before you go down range and start shooting, that determines how well you're do. You'll do. It's the same thing with combat. The Germans were able to develop a system where when they mobilized and crossed the line of departure, that's that line you go when mm-hmm. you're going into contact, they were more ready than anybody else. And they focused on leader development that was innovative, more innovative, as innovative today as it was then, shamefully on our part, because they would throw, they would throw their cadets into problems that were incredibly complex. They weren't giving them a checklist or a grade. They were determining what decision did you make, and in your own words, why did you do it? And if you made a mistake, just don't do it the same mistake again. And they were allowed to evolve. That's how learning really happens is this is what we just learned from this let's go give you different conditions maybe a little harder and see what you do again 
And the learning takes place, the evolution of learning takes place as long as you don't make the same mistake twice. That's what mistakes are. And of course, uh, in a larger cultural, military cultural form, uh, the other non-breakers are in more unethical behavior. So you don't lie, you don't steal, uh, but you and you're always honest. Honesty always take you where it needs to go. So that's the books I've written and the workshops I teach and the articles all deal with how to get behind the baseline, get people ready before they go into combat. Yeah, all that prep is everything and prep right, correct prep. That's correct prep. That's everything. And we're so you were talking about the ability to so before we were deploying, and I never got to deploy, I was injured before I could go, but it, at my unit at 10th Mountain, we would do like a 24-hour shoot house, right? And you're right. using live ammo, and you're not hitting, you're hitting targets, you're not, it's not CQB with other people, but it was intentional. We were doing it, and it's it's a four drum, like it's it's cold, and you're outside, and you're in exposed, and so it's like you, you're building in, okay, this is how we clear a room, pretty simple, and now we get done with that chalk the next guys come back around first squad second squad third squad etc now we add an additional level of complexity that we have to breach now we yep. have now we're using a flashbang now we're using a grenade now we're using deck cord now we're just adding these layers of complexity and then like you say as the day goes on and now the sun's down and now it's colder and by the way you're sleeped up and you haven't got a lot of food and yeah. you may or may not get water now as you continue to click up the notch of these elements it forces you to understand and again it's not the same room every time you come in there may be an obstruction when you get in the room there may be nothing in that room there may be nothing in the whole house to shoot but that's the lesson that's what you're supposed to be taking from that and that's what we should be doing with all these skill sets yet in the military in corporate america as well we see all this when it comes to leadership right yeah it was like lynn morrison with with b-rail and gettysburg how can we empower people? How can we do better? His theme, how can we learn? And how can we learn from the Battle of Gettysburg? The big lesson that that I teach from the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, culturally, is Lee, Robert E. Lee, was, was a really great general leader for the resources that he had. Yeah. But his big mistake at Gettysburg was his entire chain of command changed after Lee or after Jackson got wounded and died mortally on 12 May 63. And he reorganized his army from two corps to three corps. And he, then he interjected some new division commanders. And Jeb Stewart's cavalry doubled overnight to 9,700 men. And he had more responsibility. But Lee kept the system that worked so well with Jackson Stewart and in, in, in Longstreet and adapted that to guys that had never been the core level for Gettysburg. And so my corporate lead lessons is you can, you can adopt mission command and put it all over PowerPoint slides, which the military is really good at. But if you're training and educating people for the old system and calling it mission command, you're not going to get there. That's what really the biggest mistake that, Regardless, military, non-military, corporate, police, I do a lot of law enforcement where they really need to be empowered, but high levels of cognitive ability before they go out, not just the shooting, is a, but they spend more time on shooting than anything else. 
it's actually should be cognitive ability. And as you and I talked about before going out, 30 rounds, the instructor does it. Uh, I worked with Baltimore Police in 2009 to 11 as a consultant. And their shooting was definitely industrial age. You do this, this, and this. And they never did shooting in a realistic situation. Mm -hmm. Even with, they had a lot of sim munitions and simulation, great force-on-force stuff, and they never did it because they didn't know how to apply it to learning. So I did a whole bunch of workshops, and they ran them. I did the mini workshops, train the trainer, because it's all about them doing it. And then they go out and apply how to develop the adaptability and the empowerment and the confidence, build the confidence and the communication ability to do that. But yeah, the, the big the big thing is we want to do this mission command. We want to empower more, but we're going to use the old system of learning and training to do it, to get there. Yeah, and we're talking about World War One and World War II. We saw even how technology changed. There were still people showing up for World War II at the beginning on horses with big plumes, swords, white yeah. gloves, because up to that point, that's what war was. That's what we did before. That's what worked then. And then all of a sudden technology comes in and we have different munitions. We have all these other things that have moved and evolved. And if we haven't done so, even back to your analogy of, uh, of boxing, right? If I'm not keeping my hands up or I can throw jab cross hook on the mitts all day or on the heavy bag, but when the guy's trying to hit me back, it's different. Or if I don't, if I throw my punch and I'm used to not having to defend myself on the way back around, or I've got my bell rung, now what do I do? Again, this is what we're doing. If we teach these cadets, these, these old ideas, put it on a PowerPoint and they can regurgitate it in a controlled environment and then throw them out there to the most chaotic VUCA situation you're going to run into. Of course, they're going to have a hard time adapting. Of course, they're going to fail. And the problem is, if we don't give them that, we, if we don't set them up to win at the baseline before they get out there, it, of course, that's how can we expect a different expectation? And one of my my other main arguments is we need to develop the context of what we wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. So what you just said was really good about, so we have them do this and this, and then we throw them out there and they get that right hook. Mm-hmm. The biggest argument I have with the military is what are the base? You've got to train the basics first. So one of the things I always do in my workshops is I ask everyone, especially the non-commissioned officers, the senior ones, list three of the basics. One, that's a, that's a joke, too. There should be one basic, but they list three. And it's always like drill and so- ceremony and rifle marksmanship, mechanical checklist. And we can't move to the things you're talking about, Don, until they master that. Well, you can master it by putting those things in the context of a real situation, okay? So you're, again, developing cognitive skills. One of the examples is I worked with the Marine Corps OCS years ago, and they they had different ways of putting the rifle together, but it was all, they had like 220 PowerPoint slides on to do it, and they put everyone to sleep. And then they would go through the steps over and over. So what they, on their own initiative, they changed, after doing the workshop, they changed it where here's a situation where you may have to take part of the rifle and they start teaching them up. Yeah, it was harder initially, but they started learning in context of where that would be essential. Uh, the same thing when Colonel Casey Haskins, who I consider an 
uh, Colonel Chad Foster, the current third corps chief of staff, two of the best trainers. I use that word trainer because it's a mm -hmm. word that covers a lot of things, but the greatest two teachers on how to develop people to deal with complexity would learn how to do these things in context. So you're tearing apart a machine gun because you got a jam. But what are the other things you have to do before you do that? One of the things that when we did my rifle marksmanship, for example, is dealing with a jam. So the old exercise, you have a jam to fix it now. The new under outcomes-based learning exercise is what other things you have to do? Well, you have to seek cover. Yeah, and cover's big. Teammate, teammate <laughs> know big. they have a jam weapon, and, and then you show them how to fix it. So they're thinking about all those things in context, not, oh, we're going to go through all these steps in the classroom and then go out. Now I'm just simultaneously achieving a lot of other things about cognitive development that I wasn't doing before because in the previous industrial age, I had to do all this task training by the checklist, by the steps. If they missed one, they failed. Ranger School was really bad about that. It mm -hmm. still is. <laughs> where the patrolling checklist, and then I put them in an environment that requires adaptive thinking. What if I just set them up for the, to do? You set them up to fail. You haven't set them up to do. Well, I set them up is if, if if something's out of place or which it always is right. in the environment. I've just set them up. We got this mentality because it comes from Henry Ford assembly line. Hmm. The army adapted that for its training model. Is before you do this, you do this, and then you do that. Well. One of the analogies that Casey used to give, which was incredible, was, okay, there's 17 steps to make coffee with a coffee maker. That's the way we currently do it everywhere, in public schools in particular. Okay, but really what you want to teach is what are the four, what are the four or five essential things you have to have to make coffee with a coffee maker? Coffee, electricity, the coffee maker, water, and I forgot the other one, the filter or something. Filter. Yeah. See how people figure that out. Okay. My wife, when we use our coffee maker, she makes coffee in a different system than I do. <laughs> My brother-in-law who lives with us does a different way than we both do. But when the coffee's percolate, we still have coffee. You see what I'm getting to? Absolutely. It's it's we're coming to that same conclusion, that same result. And the beauty of it is if we're doing it with other people, if this route doesn't work. Yeah. Musashi, right? Many paths at the top of the mountain. So if this one's not working, guess what? We're going to pivot. We're going to flank this. We're going to take these other options. And you want to start that as early as possible versus later. Now, what we currently do is we're in the command and general staff college for majors. We're going to teach them how to be adaptive. We hadn't been doing that for the last 12, 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's too late. It's the, the hardest thing to do is teach cognitive development. And we got to do it earlier versus later. Yeah, even I, I've got a friend that's a cop and he was saying how that, like you're talking about, they qual every year, they qualify with their weapon. But like you said, it's in a controlled environment and everything that you're discussing is true. He's like, I can clear a, you know, like a stovepipe all day, but the odds of it actually happening to me here in the United States in a very clean environment, virtually non-existent. But what do I need to have every day? A big cup of situational awareness, a big capacity to have this cognitive function. Yeah before I get there, that's what they should be teaching. But as you say, you can't put that easily on a checklist and say, well, 
Um, all 100 people in this room have done this. So everybody here has the cognitive capacity. Everybody knows how to adapt. Everybody is in good enough shape to deal with the adrenaline dump. Therefore, yeah. we can pass all these people and put them into society. And I understand we're we're pointing out a lot of the problems, but I want to show that because until we understand how far reaching this is, it's impossible for us to start to unravel and come up with solution-based ideas from that. Exactly. So like when I was in Afghanistan, I was in my room, not on duty, but I was, I was a contractor. What was the thing I would practice almost daily? Magazine change. Oh yeah. I'm not throwing, I'm not saying throw the baby without the bathwater. Right. That, but those are automatic things, but I would do that to prepare to be in the context. I was always thinking about mm-hmm. what's the two toughest two things after I take cover if I'm in a gunfight. It's magazine change, which most people fail at, mm-hmm. and 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 fixing a jam weapon. Mm-hmm. I saw guys that were Marine sergeants that had two forties or saws mm-hmm. in Afghanistan that had jam weapons and would freeze up. Because they had never done it in the context of an actual fight. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you do that in learning? You don't need to shoot bullets at them, but you can do it in a free play environment, a, a free play environment where they're in a contact mm-hmm. and they're going to have jams and they deal with it. And you bring that out in an after action review and say, oh, when you had that jam weapon, what did you do? Oh, I stood there and tried to figure it out by the steps and I got I got killed instead of seeking cover real quick, letting my team know, hey, I've got a jammed weapon. i got to clear it. He just froze. Okay, one of his buds were smart enough to pull him undercover, and and they fixed it. And they fixed it the way he fixed it was, hey, you know how to do this. Just unjam your weapon. Now you're in cover. But you can tell by the training he had had that he was fixed on, oh, I'm not in the context of a firefight. I'm in the context of of what I did back back at sta- home station. Yeah, and for those of you that don't understand, the saw and the 240 like that's your those are your heavy guns. For a squad and platoon, that's your, and your company, that's your heavy gun. Those are your heavy guns, so that 240 is throwing out a 308 round and the saw's putting the the 556 round, but they're doing it at like at speed. So if those things go down, you basically have a bunch of guys with M4s or maybe pistols at worst. And that's not very much quality firepower. So it's beyond just, hey, I'm trying to survive this altercation. It's like literally, this is the thing that should be giving suppressive fire to allow us to either exfil, to give suppressive fire so that we can counter, so that we can flank. It gives us the ability to stay in the fight. But if you have a dead gun and you can't get to cover and you're not thinking that well, again, those seconds count. And if we're not reloading, the chances are the the guys on the other side that are throwing rounds down range at us are. And we talk a lot about that in the new maneuver warfare handbook, the supplement to the original that came out in 1985 by William S. Lynn. Mm. This supplement was worked out by a team effort between Lieutenant General retired Dubik, Jim Dubik, William S. Lynn, myself, and Special Tactics, which is a training organization consisting of tier one uh, operators, mm. retired operators. And and when they wrote Annex A, which which was a tac- tactical replacement for the original, they focused on how that applied to small unit tactics. Okay, because if you master it at the small unit tactical level, it can evolve into the higher level. Understanding the main effort, the mission command, the battle drills, and things like that. So we wrote the core of the book 
that Bill wrote in 1985 is still there, but it's evolved with what we've learned recently from watching modern conflict uh, in both the Middle East and, and Ukraine. The principles of, of maneuver warfare apply, even with the advent of drones and, and electronic warfare, cyber warfare, it's still the same principles apply. And you want to teach those in context of a problem. The biggest success of, of when we do workshops, and, and this is another thing on feedback other than, hey, we started and before we knew it, we ended. The biggest thing is you did everything in the context of a problem. Like, as I said, that's the best way to learn in the context of problem, as long as you're allowed to fail. And and that's the case, right? I mean, the biggest mistake is repeating that mistake unnecessarily. The whole idea is to get the repetition to figure out right. what it is and then reassess. And you were telling me that recently you were doing, it was a counterterrorism training and you were talking about the OODA loop. And we were saying how Mark McGrath, the work that he's doing with Punch, the work that they're doing with yeah. their stuff, and then all the incredible books you've written. This is something that is very much, people understand how important it is, yet they don't understand it in context. And then you have some tremendous examples and even games that you use to help people better understand it and process it in real time. So we over, and this is something that I worked out with Colonel Foster, uh, Chad Foster, when he had me down to do his garrison command at Fort Hood, the third quarter garrison command in October of 2021. I've always been thinking how to make the AR more or facilitate learning the Loop, And we finally hit on it. And what happens is you do a tactical decision game or a war game. And then you do a facilitated review of that war game. What are we basically, the outcome is what do we learn from it? Well, with the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, we know the orientation is the most important aspect. What is driving me to make the decision? Now, observe there's issues, but what is that key thing that's going to decide and have me act a certain way? And so I'm like, in combat, we do. We base decision maker in, on two main categories, facts and assumptions. Facts are those things we can prove, we can validate, and assumptions are those pieces of information that fill the gaps in the facts that we don't know to make the decision, and this happens very fast. We do it in everything. You know, martial arts, you have an opponent that may be the same discipline as you're in, but there's certain things you, you have to assume when you're dealing with him, same with me when I was boxing and rugby and all that. So you make those assumptions until you know the facts. So when we do the AR, we list the facts. The students list the facts. What are the facts of this problem? And then we go down and have one vote, one fact. Say you have 27 students and 15 facts. These are things you knew about the problem. And when they're given the problem, they're allowed a limited amount of time to write down what I'm reading to them to start teaching them how to listen. So it's again in the context and they're given limited time to solve the problem. This is not like I'm giving you a problem. I'm giving you hours to solve. They all say that by the way, well, if we had more time. <laughs> so we do these after action reviews and they're student, they eventually go student facilitated. But when I'm facilitated, the students are, they go down and vote for, so say they have 16 to 17 facts. And you have 20, 25 students. Most of my workshops are 20 to 30 students. And 
each student gets to go down and vote, or we go down each fact, and the students get to vote what they think is the most important fact. Okay. And you'll get this wide array of what people think the most important facts are. And then we go back and we ask one or two because of time, why did you think that was the most important fact? And the biggest comment we get from that is, I didn't realize Tom over there or Mark over there, their orientation was different from mine. And they're starting to discover. So when we tell people about we build teams, you start learning about your teams because what makes teams good is the ability to offset the weakness of other members. We don't like using that word, but every member brings a strength and a weakness. Okay. Unless they're a God or Lord Jesus Christ, they all bring a weakness. Okay. And we've got to start admitting that and stop being this political correctness crap where everyone's great. Well, we all have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. You have weaknesses. But a great team overcomes that and compensates for it. And one of the ways we do that is you're learning. Well, Mary, I had a, a thing one time where this one gal, she was just quiet. She was very smart, but just a quiet person. And when she kept doing, we kept doing these problems and she would bring up this fact that no one else would think of. And, and they would go, wow, we didn't realize you were like that. So not only they're learning about the OODA loop, the orientation, but they're learning more about each other. When we did the, the garrison command a couple of years ago, same thing. I didn't realize what's her name or his name would see it that way. I didn't see it that way. So that's the purposes of it. So we go through that, and then we do the assumptions the same way. They, they vote on what the most important assumption is, and they all say why they thought it was. And then after that, I finally say, this is the period that you can change your course about. Now you know all the facts and assumptions. You know why the most important orientation was for both. Would you now change your course of action? Before that, when they do their course of action as a group or as an individual, they're having to write it down so they don't change it when they hear others do it. Because what I learned, I watched hundreds of Marines and Army leaders do tactical decision games and war games and case studies. And most of the time, guys, everyone's competitive. If you're a good soldier or Marine or Airman or, or Naval sailor, Coast Guard's person or whatever, and organizations, you're competitive. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to keep the integrity going. So what I used to see, see is people, all the leaders would say, oh, that's a good course of action. That's what you did. Bill, what did you think your course of action is? Oh, I did something similar. That's not you taking ownership. That's not character. You're basically riding, I call it piggybacking mm -hmm. what that person just did. So they have to write it down and read exactly what they wrote when they read their groups or their individual course of action, their decision. And then at the very end, okay, you can stay right here. Was your course of action based on what you just heard, the one you would still stick with? And you don't have to, there's no shame in, in changing it and but you just have to say why you changed it and then the, the very end of course because i base all my tdgs off historical i just evolved and the difference between a case study which dr bruce goodmanson does so well and a tdg is a tdg can be fictional whereas a case study is based on an actual historical event yes and mark's currently on uh bruce's uh, weekly 
case method study. He does three sessions a week. If people want to sign up, they're free. Uh, Bruce puts out an email. Just look up Bruce I. Goodmanson, the tactical notebook, and uh, you can email him and sign up for him. He's got an array of allied and, and uh, friendly officers of all ranks that do them. But so we do that at the very end. I so said, this is what happened historically. This is where I got this problem solving game. But the cool part is their final homework, regardless of the length of the workshop, is you've got to come back tomorrow or this afternoon. You have to work during lunch and develop your own decision game that's centric to what you do every day in your job. Mm -hmm. So for cops, for example, the next day they came back and all day because we had five different groups. And I even use a problem to put them in the groups because I want to show them not to I go, what's the standard way you put people in a group when you do a class? I go from a list or I call them out. Right. What did you just do to your group when you do that? I took control. I didn't empower you. Yep. They don't even think about that. So when I had, oh, I, okay, Mary Jane, Tom, and Bill, and, and Marvin, you're in this group. Well, I've got a problem that shows them how to put, put themselves in their own groups that empowers them to do it. And they've never thought about that. My other purpose of doing that is if you use your imagination, you can and apply the methodology, you can use this problem solving learning methodology to solve all kinds of problems and make it fun. Because they all say they have a lot of fun at these things too. They're they're challenging, but they're they're a lot of fun. And the other factor I use is time to show them how to use time as a stress factor. So they come back the next day and they like the police did five outstanding scenarios that they may run into in New York City that were all different, all well done, all well facilitated. So they have to facilitate the decision game, and then they have to get critiqued by the whole class, including me and my partners, as how they did, critiqued. The Garrison Command, for example, at Fort Hood, they did decision games. They later told me they used it for One was how to deal with an ice storm. And what were the things they would have to do to fix that in a problem context? And they never thought about that. You know, well, we got this SLP that says these checklists. Well, put in a real problem and 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 let people solve it right there, and then talk about how good that problem or that solution was to it. So that's basically the methodology. I use tactical military tactical games or or uh, tactical actions at the squad, platoon, and company level, and one of the the only really criticism when I do non-military organizations or non-army marine organization is why don't you do police games the whole first day? What do you think I don't do that? Because you're not teaching them anything at that point. Well, I'm not. I'm, I want to take them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, I'm. I'm focused on the methodology, not what they already kind of know. Exactly. Okay, so that's the reason I do it. And but they all. If there's one criticism, it's it, the other criticism too, which we're going to fix is before we, if we're a non military, non tactical organization, give us like a flyer that has the symbols mm. and what a squad means. And they're right. I'm going to, right. I've got that from Bruce. I'll, I'll give that out in the future when we do. We're doing a thing at a college for an ROTC program in January for two days. A teacher cadre had a, uses for the for the cadets there the dean of the leadership college there is uh really big into this stuff and he's having us down so i'll have a flyer that 
this is what a symbol means. That's what you know a two forty is. Mm-hmm. It's all because they're all in the in the war in the problem solving. And just like you were saying too, with the squad company and like unit yeah. level, it's very easy to say. Listen, at the ground level, at the middle management level, at the C suite executive level, at the the board level, whatever it is, the tactics are the same. It's just a question of like you said, the semantics where civilians can understand it. Yeah, Jocko Willink when he's talking about four laws of combat. I, it's funny when people say, "Well, this isn't combat." It's like I'm not trying to say that this is combat, but everything that we're describing is combat is the most stressful environment that you're going to be in ever, the most VUCA environment you're ever going to be in. So if these things work here, imagine what happens when we come into a controlled environment where we're not under fire, where we can actually get sleep, we can take care of ourselves, we have open communication, and now we have this situation that says, hey, this customer is unhappy. It really sets us up to win, right? That's excellent. What was cool was the day the minute warfare. So I spend three or four hours a day studying constantly something. Mm-hmm. And I saw Jocko did a presentation on Bill Lynn and maneuver warfare and the OODA loop. And I'm like, man, that is so. So I posted it on LinkedIn with, well, here's Jocko talking about what we just put out in the maneuver warfare handbook, the new one. Because the new one is not a replacement for the 85 version. It's just an evolution or supplement. So that's what, let me, another good story. We did this. I won't name the think tank because they, they don't want that, but we did a think a major think tank in DC for cyber warfare for ransomware. And we've applied that methodology there. And the CEO loved it. All the people loved it because what they expected us to do was come in and give them a lecture. And we did, we put them through a problem with no preparation on their part, a problem. Again, everything, as long as you try to give an answer based on what you know, not what I know, I, you should say that's pain-free environment in that it's painful, but it's not going to cost you anything to say something wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we did this big cyber exercise and did the same methodology. And these were all IT people. And they said, this is great. This is because one, we learned about each other. We didn't think because we're always operating independently. We're as a team, but cyber as a team. And the other thing is the, t- the time limit made us think about the other reason I use time is if you have a lot of time, you're going to come up with a maybe a perfect answer that's not really perfect yep. because it's ideal. Like you brought up so well just now. Like Jocko talks about the combat, the lack of this, this, and this. So time's one way I can put pressure on you, but it also drives discussion because you just said something from the gut that you didn't have time to correct, but that's going to probably happen in real life too. Yeah, it gives you that urgency, right? Without a deadline, time means nothing. So we have that as a constraint that, as a matter of fact, in Jocko's leadership loop, the very first thing he says is, boom. What's the time constraint? Then the four laws of combat. And now we go through the rest of it. So we see that it doesn't have to be a combat-oriented situation for these things to be very applicable. And I love what you pointed out, which is it's a low-cost environment. As long as I can just check my ego, but even in corporations, we see what happens. There's ego, there's ranks, there's ideas, there's expectations. But if they can just put all that stuff to the side and say, listen, none of that really matters. As a matter of fact, I would rather you fail here a lot then fail because what happens these are if it's security it's definitely a breeze option if it's combat then people die but in corporations 
we could make thousand dollar mistakes now in this environment, as opposed to making hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of mistakes, because I'm concerned about what somebody else thinks about me. It's like, no, that's not what this is. We should be in this position where, again, putting this stuff into play, fail now, fail often, and get to that place of saying, I want to figure out where I'm wrong. The best people that I know in business, they're coming and they say, listen, don't tell me the good stuff. Tell me where my blind spots are. Tell me where there's a chink in this armor. Tell me why I will fail. Yeah. And if you can give them that, that's what they need. Of course, Mark, you want Mark's to support that too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mark McGrath's good at that. But here's yeah. the other thing that you brought up is when we put people in their distinct teams, which is early on in the workshop, I always make one of the criteria is the junior person in that new group has to be the leader. Yep. Because I normally, if you don't do that, you're going to have the alpha male female and they're not. And guess what? Everyone says, wow, I didn't see, knew that person knew that or could do that. Or they said, thank you for letting me. They already start practicing the communication. I'll give you an example how that ties to being more competent. So I'm a big University of Tennessee football guy. I went there for school. I love the, the city in Knoxville. And I'm a big fan of our new coach, Josh Heupel. Well, he's been a coach now three years because he uses a maneuver warfare style of culture. Mission command. I need to send. I, I had one of his assistants say, "Send my books. I got to do that." But what he makes, which was unheard of, is he makes the players get up and brief the press. Now, are they perfect? Heck, no. They're college students, and they've been focused on football. But does he bring them off that they say something wrong or whatever? No, he doesn't. He says this is how he, he starts making them better communicators, better. Because they're going to be somewhere. If they don't go to the pros, they may be a coach or they may go into business. But he's all right. And they start realizing this guy's taking care of us because he's teaching us how, not only to be how to be great football players, but there's other things that go along with that. So we talk about team development in our advertisement for this. Another thing was all these really high ups at this one think tank, they were made rank and file people. Okay. One of them said later in the AR, which was good about their honesty, I didn't like that. I was going to leave. But then I said, I'm going to stick with this and see. And I found out stuff about my people I didn't know about because I dom I was dominating. So it was cool that they had the courage in front of their CEO. Mm -hmm. I found out later that was appreciated. Hey, I almost walked out of this thing because I had earned this to be at this position. But I didn't know my own people like I thought I did. This exercise made me learn more about what I needed to do to make my people better. And so that's that's another thing I've learned. The Germans did that. I learned that from the Prussian-German programs of instruction. They would constantly jerk someone out and say, you are now leading this unit, be it in the exercise in the field or in the classroom. What are you going to do? We do a, I do a war game session to show people how to do war gaming on the dry race board. Mm -hmm. You can race and move stuff quick. And I'm constantly killing off someone. Yep. And the hesitation is absolutely incredible because they've not, it's not their fault. They've never been put in that situation. Mm -hmm. But what's been proven historically is when you do do that, the unit gets better. Despite what top down centralized people think. Oh, if I empower and make them better, they're going to replace me. So what? 
But if they be, they become more empowered because you develop them correctly, that's the key word. Not just giving them the power, but you've got to develop in, in the correct way because they start taking ownership of that unit. They start saying, I am someone in this unit. But the, the saying is true. Before I can be a good leader, I've got to be a good follower. Okay? But that doesn't mean blind obedience. That means, hey, boss, I know once you say something, we got to do it, but I don't think this is the right way. That's the kind of organization you want. That's the kind of organizations I ran, and it was better because of it. And just like you said, just like with that that opportunity that you were presenting to those people in that war yeah. game, you were giving them that ability to exercise trust, to yeah. exercise vulnerability, to put their neck out. And now what does that do? That tells everybody else, hey, we have this dynamic subordination. Like we can, you can all lead. We're pouring into all of you. We trust all of you to make a decision. Just like when you're at the range, everybody's a range officer, right? So if somebody's not putting their weapon down range, I don't have to say, hey, this guy's not doing, I can go over there and get his attention so that he's that's not doing want. the wrong thing. And yeah. that's exactly what we want. And that's encouraging that behavior, like you said, in real time. So when you kill that person off and say, hey, you're dead, it should just be fluid. Okay, who's the next person? What's going on? If we all know the mission, we all know what the operation should be. Again, this gives us an alternate route, more maneuverability, and all the things that we need, especially in corporate America now, especially in any kind of business that's trying to reach excellence. The other part of things that we do too is when we get our information, we deliberately leave out key information. I'm trying to encourage questions because people are, if I have a meeting and I don't have any questions, there's something wrong. That's a, that's a mark of a top-down scared organization. So they learn after the first exercise, well, man, if I'd asked about fire support, for example, or what was the commander's intent? Because in most of the exercises, the key orientation is the commander's intent. They start learning. I even do a simple exercise on how to really do commander's intent. Because the first thing I ask everybody, regardless of the organization, is what is mission command or what is empowerment? A bottom-up organization. I get 50 different answers for you. Military or what regardless. So I said, well, it's time to do a little work. I'm not going to go through the exercise because I got to keep some things. Uh, secret but the exercise is is a, the first problem exercise that they, they've got to do as a group figure it out and it, but it's simple instructions simple intent and then we end up doing like a 20 30 minute AAR about it because they don't oh we've all heard about mission command or empowerment but the missing part of that is a sound commander's intent not a commander's intent that I even got in my last job in 2021. Don't go out and make it happen. What are my limitations? What is my time? Okay, that's not micromanagement. You're, I'm going to give you an end state of what my vision of success is. It supports the higher intent, but there's some, I call them parameters. Mm -hmm. I, I like that word better than limitations. There's some parameters that that I don't want you crossing. One is I need this done by this time. You cannot believe the number of times myself and I've talked to other people that I had people look at me and say, when do you want this done by? Why? Like, how dare you ask me that? Like they left them the freedom to tell you when it was going to be done when they were getting antsy. They didn't want to tell me, well, this. And the other thing was this sound intent. They, the sound intent is 
what the vision of success looks like when the smoke clears, what Mocha said, okay, with, with some parameters or limitations. You get two extremes. You get an intent that's so detailed that's the concept of the operation, but micromanagement. Or you get one that's so vague, it doesn't really tell you anything. But the poor leader will still give it to you and then chew you out for when you didn't meet it. But that happens a lot. That happens more often than than what should be happening. So we get all into that in my workshops and in my books. We talk about that and and how to how to prepare for that. Yeah, and that's that's what we need more of. Don, I could talk to you for hours, and I'm going to have you on in the future again as well. I want to be respectful of your time. I think we've given some tremendous information and value and, and quality for people. You mentioned a couple of books when I was asking before. What are the two books or three books or that you would recommend that are very much in line with everything we've been talking about from some of these war games, some of these, the understanding Stop of what mission Udo- command, if there was a Bible on how to do this, it's adopting mission command. It's an academic book by Naval Institute press. It's on Amazon. Uh, the drawback is because they're a academic press. It's, ex- it's a little expensive, 49 bucks. But I didn't I didn't set that price. Matter of fact, I get very little out of it. The good thing is people it was came out in 2019. The good news is there is a Taiwanese version now. The Taiwanese are using it. Oh okay. that was that, one of the biggest honors I've had. The yeah, Germans are thinking about doing it, even though it's all translated from their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second big book is Outcomes Based Learning, a professional handbook. Mm. So it's actually different from adapting mission command in that it gives a lot more examples of how to do it. And it was written by a committee. I I wrote a lot of it, but the committee consisted of tier one, former tier one special ops guys and I working together. Like I told you before I came on, it's funny. I was a a tanker, Marine infantry, but armored tanker, but a lot of my good friends are former SF Ranger Delta guys, but because I think, and they believe they agree with me that the stuff to how they learn should be throughout the force and should be throughout society. So those are the main books. And then we just had the new maneuver war. It's called the new maneuver warfare handbook. And you go to special, just look up special tactics. That's where those books are at. Amazon has them all too. Yeah. And I highly recommend all these books. If you're a leader, if you want to be a leader, if you, are an entrepreneur, if you're in business, what we find is people like to use symmetrical ideals, but they're in a non-symmetrical world. And so what happens, just like everything we're talking about, death by PowerPoint, this is what's supposed to happen. But in the real world, we know that, again, no plan survives first contact once the bullets start flying, which means contact means whenever we start the actual taking fire. So once that happens, we have to understand that if this book is already flawed, when it comes to reality, why would we adhere to that? And the things that you're talking about is taking this information from observations, from history, from a, de- a detached standpoint with a lot of intelligence to say, listen, how can we apply this? How can that serve us? How can this make us better leaders? And frankly, better civilians, better parents, better everything, better spouses. You're cetera. right. I have a lot of parents that say, oh, I've learned this and now I apply it with my kids. Uh, let me close with saying that what I've discovered, I just turned 60. Uh, what I've discovered in my 40 years or so of intense study is the intangibles always trump the tangibles and the nonlinear always trumps the linear. 
And what we have tried to do, because I work with a lot of great people, it's just not me. Uh, it's been a team effort is we try to translate that into a learning methodology that allows you to understand how to take the nonlinear and intangibles and trump the tangibles in the linear. That's it. And if we look throughout history, even all the way back to how we got our independence in the United States, what did yeah. we do? Guerrilla warfare. We weren't lining up. We weren't wearing red. We weren't making ourselves easy targets. We had no other options. So asymmetric warfare that very much can be effective, especially, and even in a small business, you can apply it really, really well. George Washington, who I admire and love, he's one of my, U.S. Grant's my favorite American general, but Washington, why? Because Washington, even though he lost most of his battles, he learned from them. But what he did learn is, as long as I don't lose the army, I can lose a battle, but as long as I don't lose the army, I can win this thing. And he, despite his background, he, he was a very wealthy man. He lived in the field with the army and led his, to me, his greatest victory was at Trenton when incredible odds, he has everything to lose. And he did what he did at Trenton because of character. But you know what he did, what I found out reading his papers and all, there's a great George Washington library at Mount Vernon now is that he constantly would listen to all subordinates and take in their ideals. And a lot of times, his concept was not what they recommended. He went with what they recommended. You see that Trenton was like that. What he wanted to do was not what happily happened, but he executed and took responsibility for it. Yep. Extreme ownership, even at the beginning. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to talking to you again soon. You know, it's great to meet you. Thank you. Great to meet you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.